While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiving you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man, who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. So I saw something on the news this week that uh, caught my attention. Um, in outside of Naples, Italy, uh, the authorities uh, came to a house. They discovered that in this home was a lost masterpiece from the, the Renaissance painter Sandro Botticelli. Uh, apparently, about 40, 50 years ago, um, there was a problem in the museum, and this museum took this painting and they entrusted it to this family and then forgot about it. And so through the generations, they have been just preserving this, been hanging on the wall of their home, and then they gave it to their kids who put it on their home, and then the grandkids who had it on their home. And so they didn't steal the painting. They, they were doing what they thought they were supposed to do, which was look after the painting. And, and so we have this painting, which is actually the last painting of Botticelli on a common theme. He, Botticelli was, uh, he was fascinated with the virgin and child. And here we are at Advent, you know, you think about the birth of Jesus. And, and so that painting that they discovered was around 1509. He died in 1510, so they think it might have been his last. But what's interesting is that if you look at uh, Botticelli's painting, this was from the, we were just over there in Florence, this was from the museum in Florence. You'll, you'll see 
his quality of the painting evolves through the years, and his perspective on Mary or Jesus changes as he reveals different aspects of them uh, to us. And, and I always appreciated that, that, that here's a guy who goes deep on one aspect of Jesus' life. And you can go back to the early 14, you know, 1460s or so when he began to paint, and it's like, okay. And then as you get up into the, towards like the last ones there, they're just these gorgeous paintings that have taken on this full dimension. And I mention that because, in a sense, that's what we have in our passage this morning. Luke is, he's not with you know, oil painting, but with words and stories. He's painting a picture for us of Jesus by giving us different renditions of Jesus, different perspectives on Jesus as he was actively healing those in need. And so in our passage this morning, in each section of it, we actually see a, a different facet of Jesus. And each of these facets are important as they help us to understand him and his ministry better. And so we begin in these opening verses with the rendition that I'm calling the compassionate Jesus. Verse 12 says, while he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. That's an important expression, full of leprosy. In the first century, in the ancient world, especially in Israel, uh, the word leprosy covered a wide range of skin maladies. On the, the most benign end of the continuum, you might have psoriasis, you know, but unfortunately they didn't have gold bond or whatever to put on that, and it could become a real problem. On the extreme end, you had leprosy. As we think of leprosy, we fear leprosy, which we now call Hansen's disease, which is a, you know, essentially a neurological disorder that you know, kills the nerve endings. And because you cannot feel pain when you, in the ancient world, you'd get a cut or something would happen, that cut would get infected, and then pieces of the body would begin to rot and fall off. And, and so we think of leprosy as the disease that causes your, you know, your fingers to fall off. But really, leprosy uh, is a neurological issue. And back in the day, you couldn't feel it and they had no antibiotics, and the infection is what would cause pieces of the body to begin to decay and whatnot. That's the extreme end, and that's what is believed to be afflicting this man right here. And of course, in Israel, leprosy itself was a horrendous disease. The, the law gave very specific instructions. If you had leprosy, the, the, the law said the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes, and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Do you catch the significance of what that passage is saying about what life was like for this man? I mean, his life was a life of ostracism. He'd been ostracized by his community he was incredibly lonely. He was destitute. You couldn't work. You couldn't earn money. You were a beggar. <clears throat> and even your begging was difficult because people would not want to be around you because to come into close proximity would make you unclean, which had all kinds of ramifications in ancient Israel. Your life was a life of loneliness and destitution. 
You, you typically ended up in a colony with other lepers, and the suicide in that, those colonies was extremely high as people would lose hope. It was a miserable existence. The historian, the Jewish historian from the first century, Josephus, said, described a leper as being no different than a corpse. To put it in our modern language, this man was a walking dead man. That's what he was. That was the physical ramifications. But then there's the spiritual. You see, in, in that day, there was a strong belief that the reason why you got leprosy or the reason why you were paralyzed like the other man or the reason why you went blind or the reason why you had some kind of a disease or physical handicap was that you had sinned. Or maybe your parents had sinned and God was now punishing you for your sin. And so along with all of the physical trauma, there was this deep spiritual emotional trauma characterized by shame that you were going through this because God was punishing you for sin. So this is this man. This is the backdrop of this miracle in this story. And, and by the way, just to remind us, this is more than just a miracle story. You know, uh, last week we had the miracle of Jesus with the fishes and all the fishes that almost sunk the boat. And we made the point last week that I want to remind us of because it pertains to this uh, passage also, that the miracles of Jesus were in a sense parables. That They weren't just saying, showing the power of Jesus over nature or the power of Jesus over a disease. They were also saying something significant at the spiritual level. Remember, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. That's the old definition many of us learned back in Sunday school back in the day. It's a heavenly story that has or an earthly uh, event or story that has deep spiritual uh, subtext to it, a message to it that is really spiritual that we're supposed to be picking up on. And, and that is the case right here. There is a deeper spiritual meaning in these events. So for example, you look at the story and, and the fact of leprosy, and, and what does that represent? That is speaking to our natural spiritual state. Just as leprosy is a, a deep-seated inner malady, right? It's the outer sign of leprosy, all the gross aspects of, of what, and it was horrific, right? All those outer symptoms were simply reflecting a deeper, uh, um, a deeper neurological issue, something that was going on inside that would manifest itself in this way. And so just as leprosy was in that line of thought, so is our sin. So our anger, um, our, our envy, when greed comes out of us, or when our pride is expressed, or when lust or, or, or blasphemy or covetousness is expressed in our lives in some different way, all of those outer actions are simply a sign of a more radical inner corruption that has come about because of sin. We are born, the scriptures say, corrupted by sin to such an extent that God called, tell, describes us as being dead in our trespasses and sins. We are like the leper. We are the walking dead. I snuck that in there for those of you who watch that program. Right? We're the walking dead spiritually. We need to pick, understand that that's 
what this parable or what this story is saying from a parable perspective. It's also telling us that salvation belongs to those who desperately and humbly come to Jesus. Verse 12 says, When the leper saw Jesus, he fell on his face and he begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. You see the posture of this man in this passage? He doesn't come with pride and arrogance. There is extreme humility and submission. This is the posture of repentance that all must experience if we are to share in the grace of Jesus. You can hear the man's faith in, this, in these words. He says, you can make me clean. He knows that Jesus has the ability and the authority to cleanse him from the disease. What he doesn't know is whether or not Jesus has the desire to heal him of this disease. And so he says, if you will. Will you, Jesus, interrupt your schedule? Will you, Jesus, turn from these lovable people to heal the unlovable? Will you turn from the beautiful people to to touch the life of a sinner. And that takes us to a, another important aspect, a subtext in this story, that Jesus is both willing and able to heal us of our worst sins and our deepest needs. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will. Are you willing, Jesus? I know you can. I will be clean. And immediately, the leprosy never left him. Church, friend, Jesus never rejects humble sinners. Doesn't matter what is in your life. It doesn't matter what you're experiencing. Doesn't matter what you have done or, or what by sins of omission or commission. It does not matter. Jesus never rejects the person who comes to him in humble faith, crying out to him. There's another I would say a fourth maybe gospel application in this story, and it kind of connects especially this morning on the first Sunday of Advent. You know, Advent is us celebrating Jesus taking on human flesh. God, the second person of the Trinity, that God the Son, takes on human flesh, lives the life that we are to live. It's an important aspect of the Christmas season, and so let's not overlook how Jesus heals this man. This healing is through a very compassionate, tangible, physical way. He reaches out and he touches him. Now, think about this scene for a moment. Jesus is walking. He has a crowds of people with him. We don't know how the leper got before him. Did he, did he begin to shout, unclean, unclean? And people will, when that happened, people would separate and stand back and kind of recoil from the dirty person, this unclean leper. That was a common experience in this man's life. So was the crowd around Jesus and this guy just forced his way and it was like the parting of the Red Sea, unclean, ah, get away from this. And then he comes to Jesus or, and this is maybe what I kind of think he probably did, he ambushed Jesus. As Jesus is walking along, he waits, and then he comes out, and he just falls at his feet. What do you think the reaction of the crowd was? <gasps> Leper, right? That's their reaction. And he says his words, and, and then Jesus doesn't recoil from him. Instead, Jesus comes out, and he touches him. Do, do you get the significance of that? And by the way, what do you think the crowd's reaction was to Jesus touching him? <gasps> right? He touched him. What do you think the 
reaction of the leper was? What kind of joy, what kind of happiness, love, grace, mercy flooded through his soul as Jesus touches him? What love and compassion was communicated in that touch? What understanding of the human condition our incarnated Savior had to then tell him, go to the temple, do what needs to be done at the temple? Why does he do this? Because Jesus took on flesh. And as a perfect human, he was perfectly God and perfectly human, but as a perfect human, he had experienced the companionship, the fellowship, the love of family and friends and community. He knew what it was part to be accepted into a loving community, something that this man no longer had. But by going to the temple and making it right, it makes it possible for this man to now be reintegrated and reconciled to his family. For the first time in who knows how long, his children could hug him. His wife could kiss him. He could have dinner with neighbors and friends. And Jesus understood how important this physical fellowship with other people was because Jesus had experienced it. He is our perfect high priest who understands our weaknesses. He understands our temptations. He understands what, it, what we need as human beings. And what he does to this man is he brings holistic restoration to his life. He brings not only the physical, but the spiritual and the social dynamics to bear here. You know, Jesus could have healed him with a simple word, couldn't he? He could just say, be clean, and he was clean. But Jesus touches him with his power and that man got to experience that physical touch and all of the spiritual fruit that came about by that with that touch jesus proclaimed his love his grace his mercy is available for anyone who will come and humbly trust in him this is the compassionate jesus then we have the private jesus verses 15 and 16 but now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and say and, and pray. Excuse me. Now, we're not going to uh, spend a, a lot of time on this because we're going to see this practice over and over and over again as we go through the book of Luke. But what I do just want to point out very quickly is how Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, prioritized intimacy with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. How even though he was in the midst of a busy ministry where all kinds of demands were placed upon him, he carved out time to meet with God in prayer. He was 100% human. You know, he was exhausted I mean, with all the work that he was doing, he was tired. Don't you know that Jesus, like us, was tempted to hit the snooze button over and over and over again? Uh, you know, we know we should get up, right? And we should spend time with God. And what do we do? We, we smack that snooze button. And, uh, or nowadays, I guess it's the phone. We hit the snooze button rather than get up and spend time with God because we're exhausted. And yet Jesus was exhausted and, well, even though tempted to think, I'm tired. He spends time with God. Or when he's tempted to think, I'm just too busy. I'll get to it later. He makes time. You know, Martin Luther was uh, uh, known for his prayer life. 
He was known as a, to, to be somebody who would spend hours in prayer. Uh, he would get up early. Typically, by 5 a.m., he was praying, and he would pray sometimes for four hours solid. Uh, I mean, do you imagine, can you imagine? I mean, that's just unbelievable. And, and one day in particular, one evening, uh, he was with friends. It was said that he was with some friends, and he was talking about the day that was coming up, and he said, I'm so busy tomorrow. I have so much to do. I'm, I'm paraphrasing it, right? Until finally, he just said, I need to go to bed so that I can get up early, earlier than normal tomorrow. And he said something along these lines, I'm just too busy to not pray. I'm just too busy not to pray. And this is Jesus. Prayer was so important to him that he maintained his private life and his devotion to God, even when engaging in ministry. The demands upon Jesus are going to increase more and more as his fame will spread, but as we will see his commitment to this private, intimate devotion to God simply grows deeper and deeper. There's something there for all of us this morning. So there's the compassionate Jesus, there's the private Jesus, and then there is the divine Jesus. Verse 17 on one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Now, we then are given the details of this scene. He's in a home. Now, this is a picture of a Palestinian home, an older Palestinian home. And even though this comes from maybe, a, you know, the Middle Ages or a little later, this, this style was very common even in the time of Jesus. You would have this home, and on the outside of the home, you might have a staircase or you might have a ladder, and they would go to the roof of the house, and especially during the summertime when it was hot. They might sleep up there, or they might cook up there so that the, the house itself wouldn't get hotter and hotter. Well, on this particular day, there, here come these men. They go up the outside of the house onto the roof. The roof has like a tile roof of a, of a kind. Normally the roofs were tile or a thatch type of roof, but underneath that tile and thatching was a hardened layer of dirt over the rafters, like clay that had been packed in there and insulating the house. And so I want you to get this scene. These guys, they come up, they do this. Jesus is in the house. He's teaching. There's In the house, there are Pharisees and rabbis and other people. When all of a sudden, in the middle of Jesus's sermon, dirt starts falling down on everybody, right? There's this loud noise and there's... You know, if there was ever a reason... For a preacher to just stop because of an interruption, this was it, right? I mean, there's all this noise, all this dirt falling, and they, can you imagine? They look up, and all of a sudden, they see eyes looking down at them, and the hole gets bigger and bigger until finally, between the rafters, lowered on ropes is a, a stretcher with this paralytic laid out on that stretcher. What a, what a surreal scene. You know Luke must have enjoyed interviewing the, the eyewitnesses who were there as they described what was going on, probably the chaos that was going on. You can imagine some of these Pharisees maybe from Jerusalem who had nicer clothes. Going, <laughs> you know, they're a little upset about dirt getting all over their clothes. You know, they're carrying on. And, and so then verse 20, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? The Pharisees were one of four religious sects in Israel at this time that were influential. There was the Pharisees, there were the Sadducees, there were the Essenes, and there were the Zealots. 
The Pharisees were associated strongly with the scribes. The scribes and the Pharisees are here. That word scribe simply means people who loved the law. They tended to be the rabbis. Uh, rabbis tended to be part of the scribe class. And essentially, these two groups of people, the scribes and Pharisees, they were, you know, scribes are often Pharisees too. They, they loved the Mosaic law. They were, they were particularly obsessed with the proper teaching, application, and the embodiment of the Mosaic law. And so here they are, these lovers of the law. And Jesus says, man, your sins are forgiven you. And they immediately charge Jesus with blasphemy. And, and the reason why is because it was believed that no one had the right to forgive sins except God. You can scour every Hebrew writing that there is an existence and you will not find anyone forgiving sins because this is the prerogative of God. And so they understood when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you, they understood that Jesus was claiming divinity. He was claiming to be God, and that was blasphemy. So when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? Now let's stop right there. Let's answer the question. Which is easier to say? In other words, which is harder to verify, to prove that it's actually happened? Which one is harder? The, you know, the rise and walk or your sins are forgiven you, okay? So, you know, you can, anybody can say your sins are forgiven, but how do you prove that? How do you verify that? Well, you, okay. But if he, you know, rise and walk, well, everybody can immediately look and see does the dude rise and walk or not? And if he doesn't, well, there's your answer, okay? And so Jesus puts before them this question. But here's what's interesting. If you really stop and think about it, and some of you actually said it, the harder of the two is actually the forgiving of sins because only God can forgive sins like this. And so Jesus, he links the two together the, the rising and walking and the forgiving of sins so that they will understand that he has the authority to do this. Why? Because he's God. But that you may know, that the Son has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up, picked up what he'd been lying on, and he was glorifying God. Amazing miracle occurs in this home on this day. So what? What does a, the healing of a paralytic from 2,000 years ago or a leper have to do with us this morning? Well, if you think about where we are this morning as a people, a, a spiritual continuum, some of you are on the very end of the continuum that we will call skeptic, agnostic. You doubt anything to do, but even that story, you may in, inside, you may kind of scoff a little bit. We know that this must be myth and fable. But here's what I want you to see this morning. Like he does with the Pharisees, Jesus is presenting you with a dilemma as to what you can conclude about him. He's presenting you with a dilemma. You see, he presented the Pharisees with a dilemma. They believed that disease, handicaps, came about because of what? Sin. Punishment from sin. This man was paralyzed because either he or his parents or family had sinned. 
And so his deepest need was not to first be healed from paralysis. His deepest need was first to be forgiven of sins. And so he forgives them of the sins. And they're like, you don't have a right to do that. So he heals him and he walks. And now they have a conundrum. Only God could do something like that because the guy's clearly walking and that means his sins must be forgiven by God and only God can forgive sins and Jesus is the one who just did it. Uh Uh-oh. What's the explanation? They have a dilemma. And the dilemma is they either believe that Jesus is God in the flesh or, as you will see later, they must conclude, oh, Jesus is an agent of Satan and he's filled with satanic power because they couldn't deny the miracle. That was obvious. Nobody denies the miracle. And this is their conundrum. And so if you're a skeptic this morning, Jesus presents a dilemma to you too. Daryl Bach writes this. He tells the man to walk. He enables the hard thing, having the paralyzed man get up and walk in order to show the even harder thing, the power to forgive sin. The man gets up and walks away. If God heals only those who are free from sin, and if he does not manifest himself through those who make false claims, then why did this man get up? This is the question, and this is the question for you who are skeptics. Why did this man get up? You only have so many options. Jesus only gives you so many options. You know, maybe you take the option of, well, this is all myth and fable, but now you're arguing against the credentials of someone like Dr. Luke, who was a respected uh, doctor and historian, who exercised proper methodologies and everything else that the scientific scholastic crowd would appreciate. You're arguing against the lives of the individuals who were there, who ultimately die, many of them, the leaders of Christianity because of their faith and their belief in who Jesus is. You have a dilemma. I want to encourage you to step back for a moment and maybe reconsider why you are resisting and rejecting Jesus. Let's have lunch. Let's talk. Let's put on the table, what are your objections to Jesus? You may find that if you just step back and reconsider things, perhaps Believing in Jesus isn't as irrational as you may think it is. So on one end of the spectrum, we have the agnostic, the skeptic. On the other end of the spectrum, we have those of us who are believers. And church, this this passage definitely says something to us this morning, especially in light of our mission to bring gospel restoration to people's deepest needs and our broken world. You, in light of this story, especially the paralytic story and and this story of the leper, first of all, we understand that gospel restoration, it is holistic, and it only comes through Jesus. I I, I so appreciate the ministry highlight that we had just a few moments ago. You know what I appreciate about it? I appreciate the holistic nature of it. Yes, there's meeting the physical needs of people who are in our community, need food, and are hungry. But their need for physical bread isn't the deepest need. The deepest need is the bread of life. And this ministry that we're involved in and that we're supporting understands both are important. 
We, when we bring gospel restoration to people, it must be holistic. It must be addressing the physical needs, the emotional needs, the psychological needs, and most importantly, the spiritual needs because the spiritual drives so many of the other issues. It's not either or, it's both and. When we bring gospel restoration, if all we do is bring a fun time on a soccer field, or if all we do is we bring a, a, a box of food, if all we do is support a, a rehab program, if all we do is help people you know, have a, a, a nicer marriage where they don't fight so much, and we don't bring Jesus, we are not bringing gospel restoration. Jesus is the way through gospel restoration, and it's clear here. These friends bring their friend to Jesus. These men bring their friend to Jesus. The leper comes to Jesus. It's Jesus who heals him completely, physically, spiritually, socially, emotionally. Jesus is who does this. Secondly, we should see in this story and we sh- uh, to, that we are to expect obstacles in bringing people to Jesus. We should anticipate difficulties and troubles when we try to bring gospel restoration to people's deepest needs. Are there people in your life that you want to see come to Jesus, but you're stymied? You don't know what to do next? You've done everything you know to do, and and nothing has worked, and maybe you're even on the verge of just giving up. It's been a long time since you talked to that friend or that family member or that coworker about anything to do with Jesus and their need. Don't miss this practice that Jesus had of getting away and praying. When we face obstacles, we do not have the ability and the power and the wisdom in ourselves to overcome those obstacles. This is why we need to spend so much time praying with our Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is there for us as we prayed and commune with him and that intimate relationship and time. He gives the inspiration we need. He gives the ideas that we need to overcome these obstacles. He's the one who gives us the power. I mean, which of these four friends came up with a harebrained idea to destroy a roof and drop him down from the top? But I'm going to tell you one thing. He was somebody who was listening to the Holy Spirit, who was thinking about how do we overcome these obstacles? And it's through prayer that we receive that inspiration. And, and it's important for us to do this. And yes, we get stymied. Yes, we get frustrated. We can feel like we've come to a dead end. Um, who in your life needs the gospel who you feel like, man, I'm at a dead end with them? Think about that person right now. We all have them. You know, we all have them. We have those people in our life who we've prayed for, we've done the best we can, and it just seems like it's just gone nowhere. So what are you going to do? Are you going to give up? Or are you going to knock the roof over? What are you going to do? Church, eternal miracles happen when our Holy Spirit-inspired perseverance and effort meets God's grace. And when those two dynamics meet, God's grace and salvation that he will pour out on somebody with believers who are resting in the Holy Spirit, refusing to give up, refusing to to turn away from the person in need and persevering in living out the gospel with that person. It's in the confluence of those two things that miraculous 
salvation stories occur. And if you look at this story, Christian, don't overlook the importance of biblical community. It wasn't just one guy lowering it. It took four. And and what does that say about the relationship between that man and those friends? I mean, you're the paralyzed guy, and these guys come to you, hey, Rick, we got an idea, man. We heard Jesus is in this house, and so here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to the top of the roof. We're going to destroy that dude's roof, and we're going to lower you down so Jesus can't ignore you. What do you think? Okay? It says something about the relationship between that paralyzed man and those four guys. There was a love relationship that had been established between those men and that paralytic so that even when they brought a harebrained idea and solution to his problem, he was willing to trust them to go along with it. What does that say to the importance of us bringing people into our biblical community who need Jesus, who need to know I am loved by these people just the way I am with all of my paralysis. I am loved by these people so that when you finally bring that harebrained idea of Jesus to them, they're willing to listen because they know you got their best interest in heart because you've proven your love over and over and over again. Let's don't miss, church, the power of biblical community and bringing the people that maybe we're stymied with into our circles of biblical community to see what happens. So on one end of the spectrum, you got skeptics. On the other end, you got believers. And in between, there are those of you who you you believe in God. You know there's something wrong. You're seeking answers. And these stories, these events from Jesus' life are providing you with that answer providing you with the hope that you need, that Jesus gives access to the person who's an outcast, to the person who needs access to God, to be reconciled to God. You are an outcast right now. You may look a lot better than a leper, but that's who you are. And the good news of this passage is that it's Jesus who gives you that access. Luke gives these healing stories to teach us that Jesus meets us in our deepest need, touching what is untouchable, healing and forgiving what is unforgivable, loving what is unlovable. And so it doesn't matter what you come with this morning. Jesus will love you and heal you and save you if you respond the way we see in this story. Both the leper and the paralytic, first of all, recognized their great need. They realized their brokenness, that they needed help. They needed somebody to save and rescue them. They could not do it for themselves. It starts right there. And then secondly, they believed that Jesus was able to heal them and save them. that, 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 that interchange between the leper and Jesus. I know you're able to, now will you? And Jesus says, I will. Believing that Jesus is able and willing to save you from your sins, so important. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, the I will of an emperor may have great power over his dominions, but the I will of Christ drives death and hell before him conquers diseases, removes despairs, and floods the world with mercy. The Lord's I will can put away your leprosy of sin and make you perfectly whole. This is the gospel. This is why Luke gives us this story. 
If you will come to him first, recognizing your need, and then believing that he's able and willing to save you from your sin, and then humbly falling before him as Lord and Savior, believing in him and professing and receiving him as your Lord, you too will be saved. Your sins will be forgiven. Jesus will begin to restore your life from the inside out. If you have questions, doubts, you want to know more about Jesus, please see me after the service or stop by our care area. Lord Jesus, I pray for the person this morning. Perhaps it's a believer who is frustrated in their Christian walk. Lord, maybe it's someone who is skeptic or the person who doesn't know you but is curious and is looking for answers. Would you move in our hearts and pour out your grace? Would you touch us this morning? Lord, there's some here this morning who follow you, but they need your healing touch today. They have events going on in their lives that are traumatic, and they need to know that you love them, even when they go through unlovable things. There are others here, Lord, who can't even begin to imagine that you would forgive Open their eyes to your incredible grace. May they experience the full healing that the leper, that the paralytic experience when you touch them. The person who needs your touch this morning, Jesus, would you touch them? In your name we pray. Amen.